welcome to episode 129 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by Dave Smith. On this episode, we asked and you answered. So now you're asking and we're answering. Yes, a show dedicated to your questions. And we have some great ones. Can't wait for this. But first, as always, we start with a quick look back on the time Kevin Harvick was suspended for a 2002 NASCAR Cup Series race because of aggressive driving during a Truck Series race. David, hard to believe this was almost 20 years ago already. 2002, year number two for Kevin Harvick in the Cup Series. High expectations for sure, but also still making a name for himself. David, Harvick was racing in the Truck Series for himself, his own team, and then found himself on the wrong side of NASCAR officials after duking it out with Coy Gibbs in the truck race. <laughs> Again, what he did in the truck race was enough for NASCAR and Bill France Jr. to suspend him for Sunday's race at Martinsville, obviously leading to huge implications. Uh, maybe some people don't remember this, David. I, I certainly remember it, but what sticks out for you? Wait, Because this is not something we've seen, <laughs> Helen, in, in two decades. Well, I think it's important to understand that there's some context around this. For starters, it this was all happening. Uh, this rough driving it was it was rampant, but it was happening during a time when drivers just the year prior and the year before that had been killed on the racetrack, and not because of rough driving, but NASCAR was justifiably concerned with safety and unnecessary danger. Kevin Harvick at this point in time was riding a wave of popularity. He took over for Dale Earnhardt. It was the 29 car. Uh, He won twice in 2001, but in early 2002, he was having an on-track run-in kind of every week, or at least to the point where it was noticeable every week. He was already on probation after a dust up both on and off the track with Greg Biffle at Bristol. So when, when he's in his own truck, he kept trying to wreck Coy Gibbs of all people, son of Joe, father of Ty. <laughs> and, and he finally did. He got the job done. And afterwards, in part because he was on probation, and that's some nuance that is lost here by a lot of folks, he was immediately suspended for the next day's cup race. RCR, ironic given that we talked about this in last week's pod, RCR put Kenny Wallace in the car for Martinsville. So Kenny Wallace did get a turn of the wheel in the number 29 car. But in an article uh, in the Associated Press, Richard Childress said, this should be Kevin's punishment. But what NASCAR is doing is punishing the tens of thousands of race fans (laughs) who probably didn't know until they got to the track this morning that Kevin wouldn't be allowed to race today. NASCAR is also punishing the entire number 29 team and all of Richard Childress racing for one person's actions. To which I say, uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, that's kind of what happens. I, I love that RC used the fans as an excuse. Evidently, he's never seen a ticket before. Alan, you're familiar with the term card subject to change, right? <laughs> yes. Ah, uh, RC. Oh, boy. Uh, from, from what I can tell, 
he was the only person who actually stood up for Kevin Harvick uh, on the record, at least, because there was there are there are a lot of folks that kind of went in on him. Uh, Ray Evernham, because of course he made himself available to the media, said, "I think Kevin Harvick is a great driver, but there comes a time when you've got to respect the sport and the competitors." I think Kevin reached that time and NASCAR had to take a stand and I'm glad they did because we can't be knocking people off the racetrack. And Alan, even Ward Burton chimed in and <laughs> this is truly staggering. Ward Burton said he's lost the respect of a lot of people just from his childish behavior. I'm not going to sit here and say I'm perfect by any means and that I haven't made mistakes and I haven't lost my temper but hell, he loses his every week. Now, it's not like you don't want to make Ward Burton angry. He's not, you know, Lou Ferrigno and Credible Hulk, right? But <laughs> if you've disappointed Ward Burton, I think it's time to look in the mirror. And there were others who supported NASCAR's decision. Brett Bodine came out about this. Kyle Petty, Bill Davis, they all went on the record. And it was a big deal, a cup race suspension for what happened in a truck race. And I believe this helped set some precedents for uh, when Kyle Busch yeah, on Hornaday yep. under caution in a truck race. And he was suspended for the subsequent cup race in 2011. That would have been the fall race at Texas. Alan, you said you were hip to this back in 2002. You were a fan at the time. What were your thoughts about this? Because this was a polarizing decision. Yeah, a surprising one, but... This wasn't Kevin Harvick, the veteran, right? The, the, I mean, obviously he'd run, won races, but this wasn't like champion Kevin Harvick or garage veteran Kevin Harvick. So I, I saw this as like a slapdown of a young punkish competitor, right? Which to me, for some reason, it was okay, right? I mean, that's how you deal with uh, drivers going over their head or not playing by NASCAR's rules. Or again, he was on probation, not listening when uh, you're yelled at, right? So this was a way of, of smacking down a young competitor who needed it. And I'm not, you know, I, I can't draw a line to future success, but Kevin Harvick obviously matured and got into, uh, became, grew into his talent and became one of the, the, the best of all time, you know, out there on the track in terms of win total and champions and all that stuff. So, you know, clearly he matured, but back then I viewed this as a young driver getting some of his comeuppance that we're not going to take your BS out there because you're right. He was involved in a lot of skirmishes and it's just something about a young driver being involved that I don't think a lot of people always appreciate. Yeah, good point. He hadn't matured yet. He clearly doesn't do this anymore. That <laughs> that that was not a topic in 2021. No. Um, I, you, you, you brought up a good point. I think it was the frequency of the skirmishes. I don't know that we've seen anything quite as consistent as Harvick's rough driving was during the stretch. Like It really was an every week thing for those that watched back in 2002. Uh, maybe Noah Gragson developed an interesting pattern for a while in the Xfinity series, but he was punished in other ways, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you're if you're getting uh, two pieced after every race, I think that's that's one way to handle it. But I know NASCAR had its boys have at it philosophy, um, but that had its limits. Even if I don't think any NASCAR officials properly articulated it, uh, Matt Kenseth intentionally wrecking Joey Logano in the Martinsville playoff race. Mm. Uh, that's the kind of action that is going to push NASCAR to act. And and they did. And and I'm not surprised that NASCAR intervened in Harvick's squabble with Chase Elliott this year. It was out of hand. It was totally unnecessary. 
Uh, ultimately, there is uh, such thing as too far or too much. And Harvick, from his early days, a habitual line stepper, in the yes. words of the late, great Charlie Murphy. Yes, and we could do a whole podcast on it. I mean, about those early years, you know, obviously how Harvick entered the Cup Series, you know, the whole story. And he'll be on Dale Jr.'s podcast soon. I, I hope they dive into these early years. Obviously, they will. But kind of the psychology behind it, because you have to imagine – just the situation Kevin Harvick was in to be in Dale Earnhardt's car, to still be young, trying to make your own name. David, he actually had a great year in 2001, finished top 10 points despite missing the Daytona 500, but 2002, year two for him, was not going well before all this. And obviously some of these skirmishes had to do with it. You know, what was going through his head as a young driver trying to make his name? Maybe it all connects. I hope they touch on stuff like that because he ended up finishing outside the top 20 in points anyway in 2002 it was just a a crap sophomore year in general yeah i think it was a statistical aberration if i'm not mistaken i believe that was the highest crash frequency of his career mm. and from that point on it's he's he's been a, a pretty clean driver at least he doesn't wreck himself uh, or he doesn't get into those situations all the time i'm sure that we can conjure up some notable moments but that isn't what happens most of the time. And he's actually made his reputation as a, a very aggressive driver. One of the most aggressive I think I've ever seen since observing the sport the way that I do, um, but still managing to remain relatively spotless. He brings home clean race cars quite often. Uh, so it's it, that, that's something you have to applaud him for. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. That was oh, my, no. that was my Ward Burton impression. Everybody, thank you very much. Um, episode episode one twenty nine of Positive Regression starts off with a look back at Kevin Arvick, the original twenty nine driver, at least in some people's minds. Let's get this started, David. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It is Q&A time. Yes, the season may be over, but the podcast is not. And we asked, you answered some great questions for us. And this is going to be a fun episode, David. We have a lot of questions to get through. So let's get started. First, from Andrew Staley on Twitter. Let's say Jimmy Johnson decided to make 2021 his last season. How do you think he would have fared based upon the Hendrick performance and his own stats for his age? Interesting question. David, because it, it, it depends on how you approach it, right? Are we assuming Jimmy Johnson is with Cliff Daniels and suddenly has the fastest car in the entire Cup Series? To me, Jimmy Johnson with the fastest car at any age still seems pretty good. I love a good hypothetical. I think he would have fared pretty well. 
Uh, and, and I did go ahead and assume that Cliff Daniels would be the crew chief. Jimmy's final season in 2020 saw a 1.5 peer, and that ranked 10th out of 43 drivers. And for a frame of reference, Alex Bowman had a little bit higher than a 1.5 peer this year and ended up winning four times in Hendrick equipment. So give that some consideration. A somewhat weak point for Johnson uh, when he last raced in NASCAR was restarts. And this was uh, 2021, at least, was the year of the long run. And also Hendrick focused on having efficient launches on restarts. So at best, his weakness is either minimized or it's strengthened. He was the second most efficient long run passer in 2020. I think that could have carried over. And again, assuming Cliff Daniels is the crew chief with another year under his belt, I think the team would have won a few races. Now, I do think Kyle Larson was a mental muse for Daniels. Not that Daniels was uh, slacking before Jimmy, but having Kyle Larson as a talent in your corner ensures that you're bringing your A game every weekend. And perhaps that's different. But I also think if Jimmy has a whiff of success, a lot more success follows. He to me, always seemed to be that way. So had he won early in the year in 2021, yeah, I think it could have been uh, a playoff season uh, with a scenario where he escapes at least the first round of the playoffs. So uh, yeah, I, I mean, he he, he might have missed out. Hopefully he feels like he made the right choice because the team that he left Oof, literally yeah. won a title in its first year without him. I hope that that's not too dispiriting um, he left the Cup Series winless and not in the playoffs. I know he missed one regular season race during that final year because of COVID, but uh, it wasn't all bad. And uh, considering the uptick that we saw from Hendrick Motorsports and the sheer dominance that some of their teams had, I think it's absolutely reasonable to assume that Jimmy would have won uh, once, twice, and and made the playoffs. Did you look at the age curve when looking at this uh, question or answer, hypothetical, obviously, uh, where Jimmy would have come in on the age curve and, and try to factor in the performance? Yeah, I mean, he was he was one that always was a cut above the age curve, right? Like mm. even his, um, his downturn is going to be a little bit more impressive than the average driver. That happens. That's, we saw that with Kevin Harvick this year. Harvick uh, is in his mid forties and ended up ranking third in, in production this year in the cup series. So it's, it's possible that it does go well. I, I think that he had just been so out of the limelight for so long. He wasn't the cutting edge guy. The rules package did not cater to his strengths. He was always a high, high horsepower guy dating back to his time driving trophy trucks on the dirt but some early success in race cars that were at a number of advantages, I think would have gone a long way for him. And that all of a sudden creates a new focus. It's reinvigorating and uh, a reinvigorated Jimmy Johnson would have been interesting to watch in the twilight of his career. Great question. All right, next up from Stein357 on Discord. In the last pod, you mentioned that Denny Hamlin was a great arrow blocker. Along those lines, if the next-gen car does reduce the effects of dirty air, who benefits and who is hurt? Great question. 
Thank you, Stein. It means you were paying attention. David, I don't know how you measure this or how you uh, look at it or judge blocking or blocking ability, but what twist do you put to answer this question? I have no authority to speak on behalf of NASCAR, um, but if you can remember the Michigan race earlier this year and how that race optically looked, I'm willing to wager that a lot of folks within the NASCAR offices really liked the look of that race. It was a 550 horsepower track where instead of a lot of spread out racing that's traditional, there was a lot of close proximity racing, kind of like an extended length restart. There were some drafting track elements at play, but not the draft per se, but the maneuvering, if that makes sense. It doesn't shock me that Ryan Blaney ended up winning a race like that. And I think he's the kind of guy who could benefit if this is the type of racing that uh, is meant to be produced going forward. If dirty air is minimized, it's harder to block a run. So look out for the guys who can do this on drafting tracks when it's hard to block a run. So yeah, Denny Hamlin's pretty good at that. Uh, Blaney, Logano, Keselowski, William Byron was becoming pretty sporty at it. It's a delicate balance playing defense while maintaining a, a spot like that at the front of the field. But some of the smarter drivers are able to fashion their cars where it's less straightforward for those behind them to pass. I think Kevin Harvick, uh, it's been a while since he's won a drafting race, but when I watch him, he seems able to do this. I also think there's, uh, this is something that drivers will have to figure out if they haven't already. Blocking happens all the time. It's spoken of as a bad word, some forms of auto racing ban it, <laughs> but that's ridiculous because how else would you fend off a faster car? You know, you got to block. So uh, it, it's going to happen. It's possible that the new car will foster new and improved disciplines. Uh, and I think this uh, this being one of them. Well put. Well put. All right. Next up from Smoky NASCAR Burnout on Discord. I kept hearing people say Martinsville is similar to Phoenix. At that point, I realized I apparently know nothing about what makes tracks similar if those two are similar. So what are the key ingredients for similar tracks? Uh, David, I, I don't know exactly what Smokey was talking about. I mean, they're both 750 horsepower tracks, and we did a lot of comparison there. I, I don't want to say he was confused or we confused people out there. I hope we didn't, but that, that that's at least one comparison I would make between the two. Uh, where else would you go with this? Well, this is a good question because as it's pointed out, this isn't – I mean, we, we talk about it sometimes, but isn't really well covered within the NASCAR media at large, even though this is an important piece of the preparation by each race team. The biggest thing teams worry about is the road profile, uh, the surface in general, how tires react to the asphalt or the concrete or the dirt, I guess now too. Um, the banking, of course, uh, the severity of breaking zones, the length of the straightaways. I think traditionally it is assumed that if you have a good mile and a half car, you bring it to each mile and a half track. And that does happen a lot, but the setups could be wildly different. And it's the setup that is important, not necessarily the car. So when it's discussed and 
Boy, Martinsville and Phoenix is a kind of a tough one, but it, it, it might have been Richmond and Phoenix. But either way, yeah. Um, we'll we'll run this as an exercise, right? So so Martinsville and Phoenix, the similarities between two tracks, which seem like radically different venues, there probably are some similarities in the characteristics. Where that might be most clear uh, for those two tracks is braking and maneuvering the car out of the throttle and back in again they're different racetracks but let's say that there was a problem with cornering at martinsville it's possible that it would also be a problem at phoenix both require diligent throttle and brake work so significant trouble with this at one track could be a sign of trouble at another Uh, But like I said, though, Richmond and Phoenix, I feel, are similar, even though um, they're different sizes. When we get into 2022, I think Martinsville compares a lot to Gateway Hmm. uh, in many different ways, all pertaining to road profile. So keep your ears open for that. Um, I think what is going to help the NASCAR fan population as a whole will be the return of live practice sessions. I think that can help because... Uh, those track-to-track similarities will hold some narrative importance during practice telecasts, and that might be where you can get some more regular, proper explanation into what these teams are trying to accomplish. Thank you, Smokey, for the question, and hopefully get some answers, or further answers, and we get uh, a little more explanation next year, as David said, and we get that practice back. Next up, from Bringing D. Pain on Twitter, what have been the worst seasons in top-tier equipment? For example, thank you. Would David Stremme in 2009 with Penske and Tony Stewart in 2015 rank among them? Ooh. David, great question. Who performed the worst with the best equipment? This is something I think we talk a lot about. I mean, uh, peer is, is you know factors into this and uh, is, is a big uh, concept in terms of trying to talk about driver performance versus equipment, all that stuff. Uh, how, where do you go with this, David? What, what have been the worst season in top tier equipment? I love this question. I, I picked this question. I'm just so glad that someone else called out Tony Stewart's final years because now I don't have to take the heat. <laughs> I, all, all, all I have to do is confirm that, yes, Stewart had a negative peer in 2015. He ranked 45th out of 49 eligible drivers in peer. But how quickly we forget the same year, Danica Patrick drove for the same team and ranked last in peer. Um, her production rating was a perennial negative while driving for Stuart Haas. That probably doesn't surprise too many people. Uh, the question mentioned 2009 David Stremme. That was bad. Negative uh, 0.311 peer that season. Uh, so, so he's right about that one. Um, one of my favorites and and I don't have anything out for the guy. It was just because the whole situation was weird was Jeremy Mayfield in 2006. Hmm. He drove for Evernham Motorsports. He was let go after 21 races. He blamed everyone but himself <laughs> on the way out the door. Uh, but at the end of the day, he had a negative point five one one peer and that ranked 51st out of 51 eligible drivers. Uh, he turned in a negative peer the year after that while driving for Bill Davis racing, raking uh, four, 48 out of 51 drivers. Um, we've talked about uh, the late Jason Leffler in his lone year driving for Joe Gibbs racing um, just uh, a, a bad year in terms of production, but it was that year 
that set up uh, a late season tryout for for the number 11 car, which Denny Hamlin ended up getting. And that actually launched Denny Hamlin's career. But the good news, though, is that we're not seeing negative production emanate from top tier teams all that much anymore. Teams seem like they are getting smarter. There were just six negative production ratings in the last four years. The ones that stand out the most are Daniel Hemrick driving for RCR and Trevor Bain driving for Roush. Both are no longer driving for those teams. Anthony Alfredo turned in a negative peer this year, not top tier equipment, but it was the only negative peer in the Cup Series. It has already been announced that he is not returning to front row. So we're seeing that less and less drivers earning uh, rides of commensurate merit, um, which is a step in the right direction. I think teams are getting smarter, um, but this was an interesting trip down memory lane, if I do say. Good stuff. When you say negative peer, I mean, can I interpret that as essentially the team and car are worse off because you are a part of it? Is that what you're saying about the driver? That is correct. The driver is actually taking results off of the table. That, that is, that is how I view it. And again, it's actually, um, I, you know, I encourage folks to go to motorsports analytics, look back. It's actually rare. I mean, I think NASCAR teams in general do a pretty good job. The drivers that are competing, um, at least in these three top series for the most part are good enough to, scrap out some kind of a result at some point in the year. They might have some help from drafting tracks, so be it. But usually a result comes, and at least in recent seasons, we haven't seen too many situations of uh, of what the, the question is trying to display, which is a bad driver in a good car. Uh, we don't see that too much anymore, I think, teams and decision makers are becoming more intelligent and the sport is getting better because of it. Good stuff. Great question. Next up from Jerry Eldred on discord. What do you make of Cole Custer? SHR had a poor 2021, but still put two cars in the playoffs and got a passable rookie performance from Chase Briscoe. Meanwhile, the 41 team never really had a memorable moment. Was it just a sophomore slump or is there a legitimate reason for concern? David, I looked at the the top line stats, noticeable drop off. Because at first I was just thinking, you know, maybe they, maybe we thought Cole Custer had a bad 2021 because that win in 2020 kind of skewed our memory, right, as, as being better than it actually was. But when you compare the two years, 20, this year, 2021 had fewer top fives, was zero, fewer top tens, a worse average finish, worse lead lap finishes than Cole Custer had the year before. But then I looked at the peer projections you did at the beginning of the year. David, he he finished the year not far off from where exactly you thought he kind of would be. So what's the deal with Cole Custer? Yeah, I don't think it was that bad. I, I think we can chalk up some of the poor results just due to the lack of overall speed at SHR. Uh, Custer's not on par with Kevin Harvick yet. He's not able to scrounge out uh, those consistent results. But uh, we, we just talked about drivers not performing in elite equipment. I would argue that despite making the playoffs in 2020 by virtue of his win at Kentucky, Custer didn't perform well then. And that has sort of righted itself this year. You said it. The, he had a 0.444 peer that's close to the projection. It's far better than what he earned last year, which was 0.000. That's an improvement. Uh, he was 
um, just peripherally a below average restarter this season, but he was an above par passer on 550 tracks and 750 tracks. He is below average on road courses, though, so that needs to come up. And he proved more productive than Eric Almarola did for mm-hmm. SHR. Almarola, if we break down his production, he really just showed up on 750 tracks, and that mm-hmm. was kind of it. Custer's year had a lower results ceiling. So, you know, just by virtue of that, his year looks less appealing, but it was more well rounded. Um, so, so that's something. And do consider his age. He's only 23. He is younger than Tyler Reddick, Chase Briscoe, and John Hunter Nemechek. Hmm. Uh, at his age, w- really the only driver who has him cornered in every conceivable statistical measure that matters is William Byron. And I think that's an okay spot for Custer to be. That's fine. Could he be better? Of course. But just because this year wasn't memorable for him doesn't mean it was bad. Well put. Like it. Good question. Good observation, Jerry. Uh, next up from Dylan88 Jr. on Twitter. Is there a current cup driver whose statistical profile in cup is comparable to Riley Herbst in Xfinity? Uh, David, that's where the question ends, but I'm going to assume the the statistical profile of Riley Herbst in Xfinity can't be that good after this year. So are they looking for a driver who didn't do, do good in cup this year? Uh, yeah, so this was probably a tongue-in-cheek question, Yeah, but I'm <laughs> game to find the doppelganger. First <laughs> things first, Riley Herbst, while not profiling like a future star, it's not as if he's some egregious performer. He okay. had a .621 peer for Stuart Haas this year in the Xfinity Series. His production splits were best on non-drafting ovals. And in races with high caution volumes, he was a below average short run driver, but his adjusted pass efficiency was above average for the season and uh, on 1.5 mile tracks specifically. His biggest shortcoming was his crash frequency. Uh, He crashed 0.42 times per race this season. However, let's keep in mind, this was the Xfinity series. There were 13 drivers with higher rates than that. Hmm. So Atlanta did some digging. Uh, What cup driver had a below average peer that favored big tracks was best in what we'll call chaos races, Mm -hmm. but crashed at a somewhat high clip and was better on long runs than short runs. My answer for 2021, my Mm -hmm. Riley Herbst doppelganger is none other than Ryan Newman, a .375 peer that was nearly two times better on 550 tracks than it was on 750 tracks. He had the fifth highest crash rate in the series. He was more productive in races with at least one late restart and with high caution volumes. He was below average in all restarting measures, but on short runs, he ended the season in the black for surplus passing on non-drafting ovals and on 550 tracks. Specifically, that includes the mile and a half tracks where Riley Herbst specialized. Probably not a distinction that Ryan Newman wants, but <laughs> I'm I'm a sucker for hunting doppelgangers. So I, for one, thank Dylan for this question because it was a fun scavenger hunt for me. Yeah, maybe Dylan was trying to be a little funny man over there, but David, you nailed it and got a great answer out of it and everybody benefits. Thank you, Dylan 88 Jr. 
<laughs> Next up from JR or Junior on Discord. Maybe it's Dale Junior. I don't know. Were there any trends or points of interest during the first year of the car of tomorrow that may be predictive of the next gen car? Way back machine, David. Uh, good question. I, I don't have much to, uh, toward this answer. I apologize. Other than, you know, I look back at 2008, first full year of the car of tomorrow. Uh, Hendrick was pretty good. They won the title again with Jimmy Johnson a year after. I think it was their third straight. So they won with what, Gen 5 and or Gen 4, then Gen 5, all this stuff. So uh, the king remained the king in terms of year one with the car of tomorrow. But what what do you think of this question? Is there anything from the car of tomorrow year one that could be predictive of the next gen car? Uh, maybe, you know, perhaps not a, a true statistical trend, but a dynamic that I think is interesting. Uh, in advance of the COT, which debuted in 07, mm-hmm. um, a part-time, teams were allowed to test the COT as much as they saw fit. Hendrick Motorsports tested every day and i'm not sure if landon castle was the test driver for that season specifically but he was employed by them and hendrick valued his contributions as a test driver so much that they delivered him his own ring whenever they won championships Mm -hmm. but that was the advantage uh kyle bush was at hendrick when they won the very first cot race jeff gordon and jimmy johnson dominated cot races that year uh, only a fraction again uh, of the races that year were cot races big difference coming into the next gen era teams are not allowed to test this as much as they want but certainly do pay attention to richard childress racing and uh roush now named rfk uh, and joe <laughs> gibbs racing these these organizations that served as the volunteer flagship testers for each manufacturer. It's not much, but it is an advantage to have more reps under your belt, at least out of the gate. So again, not a statistical trend, but it could be a thing that proves to matter once the 2022 season gets going. Great question, JR. Appreciate it. Uh, a little little way back. David, I'm impressed with that one. There were a lot of questions on here. Uh, you know, I knew you could answer, but going back to the car of tomorrow, that's pretty good. Appreciate that. Next up from Joshua R9476 on Twitter. What kind of adjustment will you, David, be making to any of your statistics now that the Cup Series is going to one lug nut? Uh, lug nut pit stop questions, David, are not uh, a lot of questions. We don't get a lot of those questions on positive regression, or, or do I see you deal with them much on motorsports analytics? But will you change anything up now that we have one lug nut on the cars? Nope. <laughs> All right, uh, next. I, no. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'll, I'll elaborate. Uh, I, I measure and record, my man. I don't have to adjust uh, anything here, uh, but teams certainly will. Uh, there were some truly disadvantaged teams when it came to pit stops this year. Uh, I've been doing some, some pit stop research this week. Ryan Priest's team was, I mean, kind of surprising, but it was the only one in the top 30 with a median four tire box time of over 17 seconds. That's a JTG team. I, I feel like they, they could put better pit crews out there than that. Uh, Daniel Suarez's team was pretty bad and not on par uh, to where track house was competitively in their first year on the track. So for some, the change could help. I mean, there's 
there's nowhere to go but up if we're just talking about those teams. But uh, for some, it, it's an advantage that is gone. Uh, Stuart Haas Racing, despite all the troubles that they had this year, they still place two teams in the top 10 for median box time. And Kevin Harvick's team was the fastest pit crew in the playoffs. Do they keep that advantage next year? I'm not so sure. So in essence, who benefits from routine pit stops the most? That could change and that could change a lot. Certainly in the buildup before a restart, that matters. Positioning on restarts matters. For me though, uh, I'm just uh, going to measure and record like uh, like always and I will be happy to report the findings. Yes, exactly. We'll analyze post-measuring and recording. I think that's the, the pro- most proper way to do it. We don't have to change <laughs> anything up. Uh, good question though. Interesting. Because it, it will have an effect, as you said, and p- oh, yeah. potentially track position or what have you. Maybe we'll see some improvement from uh, some of the teams on the back end of all those measurements. So we'll see. Next up from Ja G on Discord, one of our favorites. Since we're now a season past the change, do you still think that the JHN, John Hunter Nemechek, to KBM move was as ineffective for his future prospects as you seem to be pre-2021? For me, David, short answer is yes. Uh, I mean, I learned, what did I learn about John Hunter Nemechek this year? I learned nothing. I learned nothing new about John Hunter Nemechek that we wouldn't, I don't know. I didn't learn it. I knew he could win truck races. He went out there and won truck races in far better equipment than he'd won with them before. So that didn't teach me anything about John Hunter Nemechek. Would we have learned something in something of a backmarker cup car? Uh, I would say, yes, David has an entire website dedicated to things we would have learned about it with his statistical profile. And even if he was running in 21st to 25th, uh, we would have learned plenty about John Hunter Nemechek. Uh, did we, did I learn anything personally about him in the truck series this year? I did not. Um, perhaps it would have, you know, look, I said this earlier, right? I mean, earlier this year, all he can do is kind of disappoint in terms of he's supposed to go out there and win the championship. Anything less than that is a disappointment. And you've, I don't know, not maybe hurt your credibility, but certainly didn't live up to the expectation that you clearly set when going to a truck team. So I'm just frustrated because I think he deserves more, David. Yeah, and uh, and where is he driving next year? Oh, that's right. Yeah, back for more, or whatever the hashtag is. <sighs> yeah, and that and that's tough. Uh, you know, I, I've I've seen what Kyle Busch has said. He's our Matt Crafton. Uh, they they don't want him going anywhere, and I guess for good reason. You know, they're they're in the business of winning, so that makes sense on the team side. But for uh, for John Hunter, I think he made a terrible decision. If you have a cup ride. There are so few of them. Uh, if you have one, don't give it up willingly. Uh, so now he's out for at least two years and, and yeah, everything Alan said is true. This hinders his development as a cup driver. Now, not all cup teams are particularly smart. They don't think like we think some of them do not understand how to interpret rising talent. So could he hoodwink a team for thinking 15 truck wins across two years is better than a driver who finished in the top 25 in points and cut for three straight seasons. Yeah, that's possible, but I can't speak to that happening or, or if it can happen. Uh, what I can say is that he's not making himself a better cup driver by padding stats against lesser competition because that doesn't foster growth. So yes, I uh, still, 
personally think that this is uh, an ineffective move. He's he's a very good driver. We did not need the truck series to prove that to us. We knew that all along. The only thing that we needed him to do was curb that Cup Series crash rate, and uh, I think the uh, the sky would have been the limit for a driver like him. Yes, and I understand there are realities. You can only race where you have the funding and or opportunity. I don't know what else was out there. I don't know if he looked, to be honest. But I also know that Sheldon Creed and Austin Hill are advancing and moving up to the Xfinity Series next year. And John Hunter Nemechek is still in the truck series for some reason. And it still just makes blows my mind, David. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, you have to seize the opportunity, um, when you have it, because again, there are so few, I mean, even looking at the, uh, the cup race at Phoenix, if you, uh, whittle out, uh, the, the Rick Ware cars at the MBM and, and, and no disrespect to BJ McLeod, but that as well, there are maybe 30 truly competitive cup rides of, of obviously various levels. He had one. And he walked away from it. Front row wanted him back. Um, and that is a, that's a tough pill to swallow. Um, will he ever get back to the top? I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. the, the way dominoes fall in big time auto racing is not straightforward. It's not on the level. It's not a meritocracy. So it's, it's a tremendous gamble. And the, the reward just might not be straightforward for him. We shall see. Good question, Jaji. Finally, from Andrew Stukas on Discord, what would you say is the current state of analytics in NASCAR? Have they become more accepted in recent years? Do you think they'll play an even bigger role in the future? David, I'll brag for you and for us. We know there are drivers, crew chiefs, engineers that listen to this podcast, pay particular attention to your work, David, and use it, absolutely use it in week-to-week study, hoping to improve their team and performance. But does that move up, does that attention paying go up to the team principles in making decisions, the best decisions in terms of team performance, driver decisions, all that stuff? I'm not so sure quite yet. I haven't discovered that. So whether it's team principles using this kind of data for smart thinking or just teams using it in general, what do you think the role of analytics becomes has become for uh, NASCAR racing? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think you've said it correctly. It depends on the use, and, I, and I'm thinking more so just team use inside the organization. Uh, certainly with simulation data, strategy software, that's accepted even though it's probably not thought of as analytics. Uh, And most of that is done by manufacturers or outside vendor partners. But permeating the the race shop, that's that's where is the next step. The degree to which it's permeated teams for daily use, I don't think is very high right now. Um, That could change in the new era, especially if there is more competitive balance as has been promised. Previously, teams spent money on things that made them faster, and that makes sense. But if that kind of thing is capped or it's limited, then these teams will start spending on things that make them smarter. I don't think analytics has had its boom in NASCAR yet, but when it does, it'll only be because that's the most important gettable 
legal <laughs> advantage <laughs> that teams could spend towards. And when I say spend, that's both money and time. Time is a currency just as, if not more valuable than money, uh, especially in a, you know, a sport where there's a, a big event every weekend. It just keeps, keeps ticking. It does not stop. Until then, this is still a sport run by college-trained engineers, all of whom are, are, are very intelligent, and they deal in data every day, just maybe not to the full extent that they could because they lack that time and probably the money uh, because that focus and commitment is elsewhere. Good question and good answer because uh, I, I want to see it take off. And sometimes, you know, we do these podcasts and then you wonder the decisions that are being made. Uh, I hope that, you know, viewer by viewer or whether it's a driver or somebody, anybody listening, even if it's one per week, if you just watch a race different, if you watch a restart differently, if you see a pass and think about, well, that was efficient or uh, I took him a few laps to make that pass, uh, I, I, that that's all the effect I hope we can have, even if it's incremental, David, but I, I like to think we are permeating the culture at least a little bit. Oh, I hope so. I, I think our, our listeners enjoy our banter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> certainly, um, we've held some kind of influence for that. We, we thank our listeners for uh, allowing us to continue doing this show, but for for having this be and, and it's not it's not some kind of takeover it's not um uh, a manner of having analytics as a tool be smarter than the people making the decisions it's just having it be the tool in general um is it being a tool is it utilized we don't truly know what's happening behind closed doors we just hope that the sport uh, and the people in it one day get to a spot where they're making decisions with every resource available to them. And right now, is that the case? We're not so sure. Uh, we have our doubts. Um, certainly, there's room for growth. So onward and upward. All right. Good stuff. Good episode. Great questions. Thank you so much, everybody. Next week, David, we'll record our season finale of Positive Regression. But instead of our usual Thursday post, because that'll be Thanksgiving, it will be posted first thing Wednesday morning. So be on the lookout. You'll have it in time for that commute on the way to your family to get that big meal and spend some time with loved ones. We'll go over some of our preseason predictions that we made. Uh, I, I'm scared to look at some of those, but maybe I, I nailed one. I don't know. And we will put a bow on the 2021 season. Looking forward to that, David. It's a, uh, it's a long season, but even we need a break as well. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're we're going to go over uh, the crew chief draft, uh, the, the, the results from that. We, we did make our preseason predictions. We said some things at the beginning of the year that we might want to look back on, see if they, they came true or they didn't. Uh, and then more importantly, uh, as I've seen other sports do this uh, really well um, at, at the end of every season, just kind of reflect on what took place, what we learned, and and maybe what even translates going forward into this uncertain new era of NASCAR. Because even though it's a different car, um, I think there are uh, lessons, there are, are tenets that are now truisms within the sport that can sustain. Um, so we'll we'll take some time to reflect on the year we just had, and uh, and then we'll we'll pause for a few months before we uh, fire back up and prepare for 2022. All right, we will do it again next week. 
Don't forget, we are available on all major podcast platforms, no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. That stuff helps in spreading the word. We, of course, notice it is so appreciated. David, I know the season's over, but I know you're always working on something. What do you got? Yeah, this week on NBC Sports, I'm actually writing about uh, a few different drivers who maybe didn't contend seriously for a championship this year. However, they used the 10 race playoff slate to improve statistically. And I wanted to highlight that and posit whether they could use that performance as a springboard for something more in 2022. So please check that out uh, and visit nascar.nbcsports.com. Good stuff. Always looking forward. Uh, David, make sure you just, uh, everybody, check out my social channels on Facebook and Twitter at Alan Kavana. Still doing uh, Speed Sport Quick Hits on Thursdays and our Gas and Goes on Mondays. Quick Hits kind of previews the upcoming weekend. David, Kyle Larson, Chase Elliott are racing this weekend, so we'll preview that. Make sure you go over and watch that video on my Twitter account from Speed Sport after you listen to this podcast, of course, and just keep it on there for all sorts of general racing talk. Should be good stuff. Another good episode, episode 129 of Positive Regression. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. We will see you next week. Join Tubi in celebrating Black History Month with the largest free collection of black cinema streaming every day of the year, including exclusive Tubi originals, Howard High, and Pass the Mic. Tubi. Watch free.